Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. Two great calls tonight in the call-in show. The first was, you ever have this thing where you're not sure what to think of something, some big event or some idea, so you kind of race around trying to figure out what other people read, read blogs, and you can't really put the connections yourself together. It happens to me sometimes. I think it happens to everyone. And uh, this uh, caller was like, well, how do I really learn to think for myself? How do I really learn for my own opinions and not just say, well, what would so-and-so think or what does so-and-so think about this? And uh, it's a great question. I certainly did, uh, I think, a heroic and hopefully helpful uh, way of answering it, uh, which I think will be quite illuminating. The second call was absolutely fascinating. It was uh, a question about where do ethics sit? How far do ethics extend? Does virtue extend Does the non-aggression principle extend with people who are ideologically completely opposed to you and all that you hold precious? A fascinating question. We delve deep into some R versus K gene wars and also into the current suicide uh, that Europe seems to be going through in various brutal waves of self-immolating paroxysms. So uh, I hope that you will enjoy the show. I found it really enriching, uh, really passionate, really powerful. So let's get started. Well, up first today is Keegan. He wrote in and said, most of the time it feels like thinking, but if I'm really honest, most of what I say I think is some combination of other thinkers that I've read or listened to or watched. Maybe this is normal, but a problem arises when two different people whose opinions I value happen to differ or deliver conflicting conclusions. This painfully reveals to me how much of a hidden desire that I have for someone to just believe in. Why is thinking for myself so hard? That's from Keegan. Hi, Keegan. How are you doing? Hi, Steph. I'm doing okay. So why, um, why do you think that thinking for yourself would be easy? I'm just trying to com- figure out what standard you're comparing yourself to. Um, why do, uh, I guess maybe because some people make it look easy, although that's a fascinating question. Um, no, I mean, the reason that I'm saying that is um, I like to ski, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yet I'm not a fantastic skier. I'm sort of reasonably good. But if I look at people doing amazing stuff uh, in skiing, um, I generally say to myself, well, why can't I do that? And the answer is, I haven't practiced enough, <laughs> right? And so when you look at the 10,000 hours it takes to become really good at something, I'm not sure how thinking for yourself would not fall into that category. Now, that having been said, I would assume, or I believe, that if we're raised better, then we would think for ourselves more naturally. But, you know, in school, we're taught to absorb a bunch of nonsensical, disconnected, random trivia, store it in our short-term memory, ralph it up, on a piece of paper and then move on to the next brain-deadening pseudo-exercise. So if we're raised in a, in a way that's positive and creative and encourages thinking, I think it would be quite natural. So we have a lot of unlearning to do to learn well. But I've just been reading my master's thesis as, um, as a podcast, and that was about – I did my master's thesis – it rhymes with feces. I did my master's thesis when I was in my mid to late 20s, which was about 10 years after I had started studying philosophy. In about 10 years, I started to think really for myself. And, you know, it's gone further since then. 
And so I guess I'm just, if thinking for yourself is a skill that takes a lot of time and attention, isn't it sort of like saying, well, I like piano, I like piano concertos, I like listening to to piano music, so why can't I play at Carnegie Hall? Well, I would assume it's because the requisite time and practice and 10,000 hours hasn't been put into place, but I'm certainly willing to hear alternative uh, explanations. That's really interesting. Um, uh, I mean, that, so- that sounds uh, intuitive. Like, that makes sense, actually. Like, and, and, do- and does that basic like, are you saying that that expands to a specific topic, just thinking about a thing, um, as opposed to just thinking in general when, uh, if something new is coming at you and being able to discern what people are saying and evaluate sort of on the fly, as well as ex- explain yourself when you have thoughts and being clear so people understand you. Yeah, I, I think that the, the, the road to really thinking for yourself, first of all, has to do with all mastery starts with subjugation, right? And, you know, the old saying, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. You have to learn and obey the laws of physics and engineering if you want to do stuff that, that influences nature. You know, just screaming at the wind <laughs> isn't going to do anything that, other than make tiny puffs of wind in the opposite direction. And so, so when, it, when it comes to thinking for yourself, the first thing that at least I think you need to do is to subjugate yourself to someone who's really good at thinking. And for me, this was Sign Rand and Aristotle and a couple of other people, Nietzsche and so on. You just, you subjugate yourself and you say, well, I can't do that yet, but what they're doing is really cool. And I'm going to subjugate myself to the principles and methodologies of people who are really good at thinking. So first, I'm going to be interested in their thinking. Then I'm going to learn about their principles. Then I'm just going to absorb their principles and see how they apply those principles to new information. And then um, what you have to do is you have to kind of steal yourself to, to exercise the muscle of thinking for yourself. You have to look at new information and not think, what would so-and-so do? Or what would so-and-so say? Or go look up what other people think about it but say, what do I think about it? Using the principles that I've imbibed from sitting at the feet of the masters and mistresses of philosophy. So mastery always involves subjugation. You know, concert pianists always start doing scales. And um, learning how to think means absorbing the principles and habits and approaches of those who really know how to think. And then disciplining yourself to try and uh, think for yourself and see if what you come up with makes sense. Uh, and share it with other people, get involved in conversations and so on. Until you really get that kind of creativity in, in real time. You know, like, jazz has always been quite amazing to me. Uh, in so far as, you know, there are these musicians, they're like five musicians, some Spyro Gyra fanatic. There are five musicians up on the stage, all playing random crap that sounds great together. <laughs> and how do you do that? Well, um, you have to practice a lot. And not only individually, but as a group together you have to practice you know they call it jamming uh, which to me is just it's like uh, filling up a cannon uh, full of grapes shooting it at a wine bottle and ending up with a premium vintage it just seems amazing to me but that's just because i haven't done the requisite work necessary i may not have the innate skill i don't know but generally i'm a big more uh, more of a fan of practice than skill but if you have a skill well you need to you subjugate yourself if you want to be a jazz musician you need to find the best jazz musician and sub and do what they tell you to do for quite a long time and then you begin to get creativity. How long does it take to become a great songwriter? Well, uh, it's uh, Katy Perry and so on. They, these people, they don't, they don't come out of nowhere. I think Katy Perry did um, 
I think she was the one who did a um, uh, a Christian album like 10 years ago. She's been writing songs and so on for 10 years. Queen hit it big after they'd been working together for about 10 years. And um, so how long does it, you know, well, a great, great songwriter. Well, you have to listen to a lot of music. You have to play a lot of stuff. And then you have to realize that you're just remixing old songs in your head that you already know. And then you have to keep pushing it until you burst through and get creativity that's truly your own. But I think it's, uh, it's just a lot of work. And I wouldn't denigrate yourself for something which looks easy when other people do it. Like I remember going to see Sting many, many years ago. I think it was his Dream of the Blue Turtles tour. And there was this, this pianist, this black guy. Ah, incredible. Like he's playing one hand this way and one hand that way where they're jamming for like 20 minutes. And it's just the most blistering and amazing stuff that he was coming up with. I love jazz piano, in particular, funky, hard jazz piano. And um, I don't sit there and say, wow, I should just jump up and do that, right? What I do with my mouth is the same as what an elite concert pianist does with his fingers or a jazz saxophonist does with his breath and with his fingers. Uh, Just because other people can talk doesn't mean that they can do what I do, just as I can push keys on a piano, that doesn't mean I can do what a jazz pianist, improv pianist can do. And so I think, there's a book I read years ago called Respect for Acting. I was made to read it in theater school. Uh, And it was uh, saying, you know, actors don't just get up and do amazing stuff. They have to do a lot of prep, a lot of work for it and so on. And uh, respect for philosophy, respect for thinking, um, it's a challenging road. Uh, It's a tough road. I think the benefits are well worth it. But um, just because I have have fingers doesn't mean that I can do jazz pianist, uh, do jazz pianist work without the requisite practice rehearsal and subjugating myself to the discipline of the masters. And just because you can speak doesn't mean that you can do what I can do without the requisite discipline and work. Like now I've got, it's been 31 or 32 years since I wrote my master's thesis and uh, I filled a lot of that time up with philosophy as well. So uh, it's just, it's very experienced jazz that you're looking at. And I wouldn't assume that the reproduction of it is as simple as, you know, some click moment where you suddenly cross over and can do it. Does, does that make any sense? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, hes- I mean, I, I, I hesitate to say that I, that I was thinking that thinking should be easy. Um, I feel like uh, part of okay. So when I'm sub so subjugating myself to the masters, right? Um, how when people okay? So so when you when you speak of these sort of masters of thought, are they really delivering methodology when they're saying what they think? Well, some, some of them are. I mean, Ayn Rand and Aristotle in particular talk a lot about methodology. Uh, Ayn Rand, to, the small, to a smaller degree in her nonfiction, particularly the long speech in Atlas Shrugged, but in her nonfiction work, and Leonard Peikoff has done an introduction to objectivist thought as well, she talks a lot about methodology. Uh, Aristotle talks a lot about methodology, and you can read Francis Bacon for scientific methodology and so on. Nietzsche, of course, not so much <laughs> with the methodology, but strikingly creative in originality and in the stimulus for areas to explore. Uh, Nietzsche, what he does is he puts lightning strikes in fascinating landscapes. He just lights up 
these landscapes that are just fascinating and inviting. And then he moves on because he's got a destiny with uh, syphilis to meet, start kissing horses and go crazy. So Nietzsche is like a lightning strike in a fascinating landscape. And then if you want to follow him or where he's been, then you fire up your torches and you go in slowly and cautiously with blow darts and helmets. And um, so, yeah, I think that um, the they do talk about methodology and there is very good. Uh, I've obviously talked about methodology. I've got a whole 17 part introduction to philosophy series that I did years ago. So I talk a lot about methodology, but simply hearing a methodology does not give you the practice, right? Hearing a methodology is like like watching a great skier. Listen, I can watch a great skier all day. It's not going to make my skiing any better. Right. You actually have to I go out there and do it. I actually have to go out and, and I have to train my muscles. I have um, trained my language and brain and gesture and vocal muscles to the point where they all work in harmony, I think, like a pretty great jazz band. And that has taken a lot of years, a lot of experimentation, a lot of practice, right? Like I practice speaking philosophy six, eight, 10 or 12 hours a week. And it shows. And that is, yeah, that is a lot of practice, man. If I wasn't any good at it, I really should be doing something else. Like creating manhole covers out of popsicle sticks (laughs) in some house for special non-philosophers. So, um, so simply listening to this show doesn't, you know, doesn't really help people learn how to think. It's not bad, you know, and it can give them some way to go and, and maybe it'll show them a few things not to do, but you actually have to go out and train the brain muscles and train the muscles of everything. It's not just the brain muscles. Uh, it's also the muscles to express it, to embody it, to communicate it in a way that's engaging and enjoyable for people because philosophy at this point should not be studied as a hobby, uh, any more than in a time of plague, you become a doctor for funsies, right? I mean, philosophy needs to be studied in order to bring about mature and wise and passionate and powerful and rational change in the world. We are, you know, in the future when the world is peaceful and free and stateless, then philosophy can be studied reasonably as a hobby. But I think right now the urgent need of mankind is so great that if you feel the calling towards philosophy, uh, you need to uh, learn it, study it and start doing it right? I mean, if you want to be a jazz musician, then you can read the biographies of Miles Davis. You can read the biographies of uh, Yanni <laughs> or whoever, you know, whatever they, these guys do, uh, Kenny G and whatever the hell he plays. But uh, you actually have to pick up an instrument and you have to start playing. And then you have to go to uh, play for your friends. You have to play it, record it, listen back to it. Then you have to go to play at a coffee shop. Then you have to go play in a nightclub. Then you have to go, you know, cut an album, put it out on YouTube. You ha- like you have to just keep doing it and keep doing it until you just get um, uh, better and better and better at it. And um, I mean, that was the Beatles thing, right? The Beatles went to Germany and for like a year or two, they played six, seven, eight hours a day, a day. Like they, they had more practice in six or 12 months in Germany when they were young than more bands have their entire careers as bands. They just have played that much live. And that's one of the reasons why they were so fluid and fluent when it came to creating uh, music. They simply didn't have to think about them. You can't be creative when you're thinking about the mechanics. And uh, you have to be very nimble and surf uh, the skill set that you have laboriously acquired if you want to achieve excellence in communications. So I can't be thinking about, well, how does my voice sound? What should I do with my hands? Like, I, that, that, would compl- like, that all has to be automatic. Like I saw an interview with Sting, but he was, you know, somebody took away his bass 
And he's like, I can't even sing without my bass. Like I'm so used to singing and playing the bass together or, you know, in Fragile, he plays the guitar and then he wastes six months of his life on a fucking lute. But that's another story. Um, but, you know, he's like, I, I don't even know. Like, I can't. I, I, even, I can't even remember the words if I don't have the bass in my hand because that's how trained his body is, his mind and body is, in doing all of that together. Kind of like so, trying to say the alphabet out of order, right? You can't, like, it's harder to say all the letters out of order than in order, A, B, C, D, E, F. Yeah, I mean, try right. singing the uh, um, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F. Try singing that backwards. I mean, right. that's complicated. It has to be right? hard, yeah. You actually have right. to think so, about it. <laughs> Yeah, so if you have a, a bent towards philosophy, I think that's fantastic. I think you should study it as a, uh, a grim and giddy methodology, uh, a grim, giddy and necessary methodology for saving the entire planet and nothing less, if you don't mind me putting that kind of burden on your potential shoulders. I think that's what uh, we need. That's what the world needs at the moment. But I w And the reason I'm saying all of this is so you don't feel down on yourself for not having a skill that is hard to acquire you know like there's this uh, spoken word bit in um, one of the doors songs you know, with a backbeat that is narrow and hard to master <laughs> and that is true about philosophy it is it is complicated it is challenging it's hard to master and it's really hard to render it in real time i remember john stewart talking about um stephen colbert how he he was able to render that character in real time which i think is a very cliched it's a very pompous way of just saying he was in character mm. but being able to render philosophy in real time in conversation uh, that is a, a big challenge, and um, I think that uh, you just have to keep uh, working at it, and uh, it will eventually seem easy, <laughs> but that's only after a huge amount of work. I think, so in, in hearing what you're saying, I, um, I've noticed, I noticed something. So I've, I, con I certainly consume a lot of people that I think of as thinkers, right? I, I sort of value them as thinkers that sort of talk about things and have opinions about things, you know, yourself included. And, um, and I, you know, I can spend time thinking about it to myself. I get pretty gun shy when I think about it to other people. And, uh, I also know that I have some biases towards things where the information that I am sort of taken in by and drawn by, I uh, uh, reinforce it. And, I, and, and there are times when it's revealed to me that I'm doing that and I realize that that's not thinking and why do I get stuck in that sort of, that sort of circle. Um, like, uh, I recently read your book, I'm uh, not your book, um, the guy who just wrote that book, uh, Epstein, uh, he was on your show the other day. Oh, the, the moral case for fossil fuels. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I had come across him sort of randomly, was intrigued by the book, and I think it's the type of thing that I'm very taken in by because it's sort of like an unpopular opinion. And, uh, and, um... You know, this is since since I wrote in with with my question in this sort of interim period, and uh, so I've been trying to really focus on that, like like trying to ignore that I like it and think about it. Uh, but it's very easy to sort of fall into that trap. 
Um, and oh, especially you mean when, when someone I, makes a convincing case, then that seems very compelling to you. And it, does that feel like the case is open and shut then? So certainly plenty of people make convincing cases. And one problem is when two people make convincing cases that have that are basically, you know, opposing conclusions, right? Um, and other times it's a convincing case, but I know that I am particularly susceptible to some sort of some kinds of conclusions, right? Yeah, but okay, so but the question is, why do people disagree? And, and it is a foundational question, right? So if two people are making very compelling cases, but they are on opposite in opposite positions, the question is, why do they disagree? And I don't mean sort of the emotional motive. I mean, how could they disagree? And the reason that they disagree is that they are not digging deep to the moral principles. So is that me? Does that does that imply like imply that one of them isn't thinking? Well, probably both. But <laughs> no, that they're, they're they're sophistry. That they're manipulating. Right. So uh, Brian Epstein, sorry, uh, Epstein had a um, conversation. Alex Epstein had a conversation, a, a debate with an environmentalist. And I don't I mean, the reason why they were disagreeing was that they were disagreeing about the use of government power. And the question is. If we agree that the non-initiation of force is the moral action, then so many supposed disagreements are just taken off the table. They don't over this basic question of, is it okay to initiate the use of force? So Bill McKibben, the guy who Alex Epstein was, Epstein, sorry, was um, debating, was like, well, we got to do this and we got to save the planet and we got to ban this. I mean, it's like, okay, so that's just the initiation of force. You're okay with the initiation of force. Now, if he is genuinely okay with the initiation of force, he should be fine to say that. Should be fine to say that, right? Um, right. But he's not. He, he keeps clouding it in some sort of vague um, uh, idealism and, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I saw on the Bill O'Reilly show the other day, had Donald Trump on, and Bill O'Reilly was, in his usual big, beefy, Irish, meathead way, was berating Donald Trump because Donald Trump says that he wants to... Um, uh, to, uh, to kick out, to, to export... <laughs> To, to, to get out of the country the illegal immigrants in the United States. And so Bill O'Reilly is like, oh, so what you're saying is there is a mom and a dad and they're illegal and they've got a kid and the, the, they've got two kids and the kid's illegal because they were born on American soil and you've got these two parents that are illegal and you're just going to, what, I, ICE agents are going to just kick in the door and drag these people off to a detention center, blah de blah de blah And... <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to mean to laugh. It's a horrifying scenario. But Bill and everyone else, that's what laws are. You know, when, when someone talks about raising taxes, are you going to say, well, you know, there's some guy, he can't afford to pay his back taxes. Uh, he was he's taken by out of left field by this tax increase. His business has been ruined. He has, are you just going to send the police to kick down his door if he doesn't? Yes, that's exactly what happens. Hello, that's exactly what, with a law, there's some guy with a gun and you either obey the letter that comes in the mail because there's a guy with the gun or you obey the guy with the gun or you don't obey with the guy with the gun, in which case he'll shoot you. 
So yeah. now suddenly everyone's like, oh my goodness, there's going to be force involved in a government law. And it's like, oh God, how can I even talk to you people? You fucking sophists. They're everything, you know, if you regulate the size of grapefruits that can cross state lines, yes, someone with a gun is going to kick in someone's door if they don't comply and if they ignore their summons and if they don't pay their fines. Yes. Are you saying that for grapefruits we want to how how how? It's like yes, of course. <laughs> if they're there, if he, they're here illegally, then getting them deported means if they don't do it willingly, kicking in their door, dragging them out, screaming, Ilian Gonzalez, all that. that's a government law. But saying it's really bad when it's applied against illegal Mexicans, but not when, say, taxes go up against other people, is just ridiculous. Every single law is the same way. Now, you could say, well, let's just get rid of the borders. Let's just have everyone come in and blah de blah de blah Fine. But if there's a law and you have to enforce it, guess what? So if they had talked about the non-initiation of force in that conversation, if they had dug down to the actual principles, then they would not end up disagreeing. Because they'd say, well, is moving initiating the use of force? Well, kind of now, yes, it is. This is the great tragedy of immigration in a welfare state, right? Which is when most, like 80% of a lot of the immigrants in Europe are on welfare, even a year or two later. Which means that when you move to a, a place, you are then, by taking welfare, you are initiating the use of force against domestic citizens because they are forced to pay for the welfare that you're consuming. It's not charity. It's force. And so, unfortunately, moving to a welfare state and going on welfare is the initiation of force. Taking English as second language programs, uh, putting your kids in school, this is all the initiation of force, especially because you haven't paid the taxes to blood. Right? And so if they talked about it, they'd have said, well, you know, we shouldn't kick people out of the country because that's a violation of the initiation of the use of force. But then we shouldn't force other people to pay for them because that's a violation of the initiation of the use of force. And very quickly, they get down to what the real problem with society is, which is violations of the non-aggression principle. And it ain't just centralized on a couple of immigrants or a welfare program or all the welfare programs. It's everything. But because people skate on the surface and try and pretend that there aren't these basic violations, then it's all about, I don't know, where should we house the slaves? You know, is it, is it better to house them in a nicer place? Should we house them in a less a uh, nice place to save money and thus lower the price of food to the poor. I mean, it's all just in negotiating at this stupid level of abstraction that has nothing to do with the moral reality of the situation. Should we have slavery at all? A much more important question. And if we shouldn't have slavery, right, the, the, this is the, the anti-slavery position that very rarely got, got elucidated then and even less now. Slavery was wrong. wrong. Why was slavery wrong? It was the initiation of force against other human beings. It was taking... 10 to 20% of their income, right? Slaves actually pay less in tax than most people do these days because slaves received 80 to 90% of the value of their labor in, uh, uh, in uh, food and shelter and medical care and so on. They were only taxed at 10 to 20%, but they couldn't quit, right? So that was the initiation of the use of force. So we're forcing people to stay and we are stealing their labor against their will. Okay, well, in most countries, you're forced to stay. I mean, it's actually easier to get into America than it is to try and leave America these days. You can just walk in, but try and leave. Try and leave and not pay taxes. Try and leave and not 
be subject to the control of the U.S. government from here to eternity. You can't. You go move overseas. You can rounce your passport and so on. They can still come after you. And they can for years. And they probably will these days. They're so hungry for tax money. And so, yeah, it's easier to move into the, it's like a roach motel. You can check in. You just can't check out unless you leave illegally the same way you came illegally. And so the reason, why do people disagree? Because they're not talking about the basic moral principles. And the reason they don't want to talk about basic moral principles is then they are immediately set against most of the deep-seated beliefs in their society, modern societies around the world. Most societies throughout history, all founded on basic violations of the initiation of the use of force. After that, you're just arguing about the details of where to bury the bodies, not whether people should be killed at all. And they're already sort of, and oftentimes, feeling powerless enough as it is that the to to be able to renounce that that um, that societal wind, I guess. Uh, uh, would be the harder path. Well, I mean, certainly for someone like Bill O'Reilly, for sure. I'm not to pick on him, but um, yeah, because um, this is the problem. Advertising is very conservative, right? Advertising produces a lot. Of, and by conservative, I don't mean Republican versus Democrat. It just means it tends they tend to really maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. Because corporations are heavily invested in achieving rent-seeking from the existing political system. Right. And so... Um, a lot of corporations, a lot of corporations, will get very upset uh, at uh, anti-state rhetoric because that's they don't want to be they don't want to get in trouble with the state by funding like voluntarists or whatever strongly libertarian channels and like on on yeah so I you know he's got to please his advertisers he's in the business of delivering eyeballs to the advertisers and if he goes to foundational moral issues and starts to question the basic foundation of the society that he lives on, not just nibbling away at the who cares edges of things, well, his advertisers are going to have a big problem and people are going to have a big problem. We have become so doused in unreality that we're like uh, a monk soaked in gasoline. You know, the truth is like a match to the vapors of our confusions. And uh, people get that. Like we've, we've so invested in unreality that reality has become like a demon to us and an enemy and a danger to the entire structure of our pseudo personalities. Uh, you know, when you can get people to conform to psychosis, uh, sanity becomes the most dangerous predator in the world. And so, yeah, he's not, it's all just a bunch of noise and nonsense. I mean, nobody's going to get to the essence outside of these kinds of conversations. Right. Um, I, yeah. I'm trying to process it all as you're saying it, and it's. Uh... Oh, listen, no, no problem. Why don't you take a take a break and soak it in, <laughs> soak in the thought, <laughs> and uh, we can uh, call back in if you have more questions after this. Okay, yeah, I, I probably will. Well, thanks, Keegan. I appreciate it, and uh, I certainly appreciate your interest in philosophy. And I'm certainly not trying to scare you away from it. I no, just, uh, I, I. I don't want you to climb the mountain without oxygen. <laughs> it's, it's a long haul. That's all I want to say. Well, thanks for calling in, Keegan. A great chat, and uh, wish you the very best, and I hope we can chat again soon. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, up next is Sam. Sam wrote in, and uh, this is regarding Gene Wars, our series on RK selection theory. So if you haven't checked that out, definitely something I recommend. He wrote in and said, given that there are Gene Wars going on, does it invalidate the non-aggression principle? 
The non-aggression principle doesn't work if it's not universal, and it's not universal because there are subspecies of humans in heavy opposition. We are not all the same, so why should the rules be extended across gene sets? And that's from Sam. Okay, so, yeah, so for those who don't know, I'm not even going to go into a background, just go watch Gene Wars. It's going to be a pretty important part of what we talk about in the show. I can't keep doing the same thing every week. So I'm just going to assume people know the R versus K stuff. But the basic idea, and it's not just R versus K, is that brains are different. <laughs> we don't all have sort of one soul brain that is roughly equivalent across the right. I mean, there are differences in intelligence, right? I mean, there's a bell curve of intelligence and there's difference in ethnic, ethnic levels of success on IQ tests. There's difference in adrenaline. Uh, and uh, between various IQ groups. There are biological differences. Males and females have different brains. Men cluster more at the higher ends of genius and the lower ends of not so much genius, but definitely really slow. And so, you know, a lot of difference, uh, a lot of differences in, in brains. And those differences are not just ideas, <laughs> they're actual physically different structures. Liberals and conservatives have different brains. Uh, and so looking at human beings as one species is not biologically valid. We are a variety of subspecies, politically, um, uh, um, ethnically sometimes, uh, definitely in terms of gender, in terms of IQ, uh, in terms of culture. They, these produce physical brain differences that are very hard to remediate when you get older. And so we are a cluster of genetics all fighting to reproduce their own particular genetics. And so the R's want to produce R's, the K's want to produce K's, and so on. And um, so uh, I don't, I, I'm happy to hear the case. I don't know how this violates the non-aggression principle. I think as far as aesthetically preferable behavior, uh, as far as things that we like, politeness and niceness and reciprocity and honor and keeping your word and so on, I think there are alterations there, but I don't see how there would be an alteration in the non-aggression principle, but I'm certainly willing to hear the case. Sure. So, um, so it, it, what it comes down to is like, do the K-type individuals have this right of self-defense against gene death that is kind of perpetrated by our type no. of society? No, yeah. nobody has the right of self-defense against gene death. Otherwise, rape would be justifiable under the ethic of self-defense. Right? Because if, if no one wants to have sex with me, then unless I, you know, squirt my load into the mouth orifice of some Japanese, or oh, I guess it wouldn't be the mouth orifice, if I squirt my load into some dildo extension of a Japanese sex robot and nobody knows about it, uh, I am not going to reproduce if nobody wants to have sex with me. And so I face gene death. Right, my my entire four billion year path of genetics that led to me ends with me. But uh, there's gene death is not the initiation of the use of force. Nobody's killing you, right? And so it is um, uh, it is not valid to initiate the use of force to prevent gene death because gene death is not the result of the initiation of force. Nobody's killing you; they're just not having sex with you. It may feel like you're dying; you're just not. I, I I agree with that, um, but I, I guess what I'm more trying to say is like you know all, like my my parents not my parents but my grandparents they live in Europe and they're seeing you know the mass like 
uh, migration of Muslims from Syria and like, and I, I was just wondering, like, would they be well, just just to be to be fair? Not that many of them are coming from Syria. Most of them are coming from the other sixteen countries in the region, uh, fourteen of which are not currently at war, and three quarters of them are young men. So no, it's not Syrian refugees that are pouring into Europe. There's a few, but of course nobody knows as well because a lot of them are just ditching their papers. I but, would do um, that. Judging by the headlines, yeah. or just it's like, oh, they're in a horrible war-torn country, and uh, why? Yeah, and st- it's just not—it's not the case. And and they're not just trying to. They, if they want to go someplace safe, they can go to Turkey. They can go to Jordan. They can go to the other countries around where there are already camps. They could even ask the Saudis. The Saudis have a hundred thousand air-conditioned tents that can hold hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, that are there for the pilgrimage to Mecca, I think it is. Um, so they could go. They, they, there's places where they can already go. They just want to get to Europe uh, because Europe has really a really great uh, welfare state, right? They're, they're passing through all the countries with less generous welfare states and going to Sweden. You got to go to a lot of countries before you get to Sweden, and they're going to Germany and other places where they get a um, a better welfare state. So, um, like fruit bats so, go for the biggest fruit. What can I tell you? <laughs> right, and I, I was. As I was listening to the previous caller, you kind of touched on this in the sense that, um, like, migrating to a welfare state is a violation of the NAP because, you know, you're going to be forcing other people to pay for you. And um, so what I was wondering is, like, because, you know, a lot of these, there's, like, these groups of people in, like, Germany and elsewhere where, like, they have to wear, like, face masks and stuff. And they're basically saying that we should deport all these people that are coming over. And I wondered if they would be justified in that under some kind of self-defense, given that, like, like for example, in, in like the refugee camps, they have to segregate them by religion because when they had it unsegregated, the Muslims would, like, terrorize the Christian refugees. And it, it just seems like... It's not necessarily that any one person is moving to Europe and like oppressing people, but it seems like a cultural, like an oppressive culture is coming over there. And like, how do you even defend against that? Like, do you just have to evacuate Europe? It's a lost cause or it's, it's a... Look, I mean, the only, I mean, the only way you can defend against it is intellectually. You, you can't go around uh, attacking people physically. That's not going to work. And it would be the initiation of the use of force. Because it's not specific to, to immigrants, right? Like uh, some local woman who has a bunch of kids and can't provide for them and then has to sit on welfare and food stamps and Section 8 housing or whatever the equivalent is in Europe. Uh, they're also voluntarily initiating force uh, against people by demanding that the government pay for everything, which the government has to take from other people, you know, parents who don't take care of their ch- poor parents who don't brush their children's teeth and and have them fall asleep with juice boxes uh, dribbling into their mouths. Well, they end up having to get their uh, their kids uh, dentistry paid for by the taxpayer. So they're initiating. It's not particular to immigrants, although with immigrants, they have not uh, usually contributed to the tax scheme at all. They're just coming in and, and so on. Right. And uh, I don't you, you, I mean, I can't, can't initiate the use of force against them because they're not in particular initiating force. The problem is the system, not the individuals, right? You, you can, if you attack the people, you simply strengthen the system. I mean, if, if anybody was 
foolish and immoral enough to start attacking refugee camps, all it would do is strengthen the system. Because then people would say, well, this is terrible, this is evil, we need a government to protect us against uh, these crazy, crazy, xenophobic, Nazi, racist, bastard attackers. And I mean, if you attack the people, you strengthen the system. If you attack the system, you strengthen the people. And that's why, and attacking the system is always intellectually. And uh, it's easy to throw a bomb. It's hard to lob a good argument and to stand by it against the storms and arrows of outraged idiots. So um, it's a tragedy of the commons, too. Where, where are these people moving? They're moving to places that are unowned. You know, if, if someone wants to come and move into your house, you say no, and you call the police and you have the person removed because you own it. Right? This is all government land. It's all government places, and the government is forcing the people to accommodate everyone. And then the government's going to force people to hire these people through affirmative action. And the government is going to force people to associate with these people. And it's going to rip down any exclusionary club that doesn't want Muslims in. And it's going to force people to... Us- so it's all just a tragedy of the commons as a whole. And uh, if, if everything were private, then this would not be an issue because there would be privately owned land that you would not be allowed to trespass on. And if you trespassed on that privately owned land then people would have the right of aggressive self-defense and it would not be anything xenophobic or racist. It would be like swarms of people are coming across my land. I told them to go back. They refused to go back. I can use force to protect my property. But this, of course, the government has taken over a huge amount of land and the government has appointed itself the defender and marshal of all that commonly owned land. And um, of course, you get, <laughs> the government's taken it over and turned it into the commons and uh, taxes are the commons, the welfare state is the commons, the immigration crisis is all the commons. Eh, people gave government the power over, I mean, huge amounts of land in America owned by the government, huge amounts of land in Europe owned by the government. And the government is not protecting the land because it's not an individual with no particular personal investment or financial investment in the land itself. So uh, it's just a problem of the commons. Uh, it's a pretty unfortunate and tragic problem of the commons. But um, the initiation of force isn't going to, uh, uh, isn't going to solve it. Uh, it. It would only be on individual self-defense capacities. But um, that's not going to work that well either uh, anymore. Uh, the, um, you know, a lot of the, the legislative assaults in, in some ways in America have been around chipping away the right of, of self-defense. Um, and that is because, uh, at least under Obama, the government is planning on moving more and more um, uh, minorities into majority areas, right? It's moving more and more minorities into white neighborhoods. So they're, they're building up databases, they're targeting, they're making sure, because now every single block has got to represent the local demographic. And so forced association, people will submit to it for a while, but the blowback is brutal. And, uh, of course, the blowback is exactly what the government wants. They force people together who don't want to be together. And then there's lots of friction, lots of conflict. And then the government gets to step in and try and sort things out and then makes things worse. Right. Uh, Multiculturalism, like war, like the welfare state, like the war on drugs, is just another government program. Just like bringing peace to the Middle East and bringing stability to the region was a big government program. And, um, yeah, the mass human migration of, of terror, greed, fear, panic and xenophobia it's just the result of these giant government programs called countries. No, I, I agree. It's immigration is basically a government program. I mean, the way it works today, you know, they, they bring people in so they can fill jobs and they can 
get votes. But what another thing that made me think is like, you know, granted that governments are immoral, but like Hungary's uh, president is like they put fences around their whole country and they're like spr- like pepper spraying people that are trying to break in. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the full footage of that, it's because the migrants started attacking them and throwing rocks at them and stuff. Um, that they, they didn't just sort of pepper spray people wandering past the fence, right? They were facing uh, a, an invasion of sovereign territory, and they responded with uh, the minimal force that has ever been seen throughout history for this kind of invasion. A lot better than the Crusades, right? People forget, of course, that the Muslims tried to take over Europe for about a thousand years and were only stopped at the gates of Vienna. Uh, relatively recently. And uh, this is, uh, you know, I mean, if, if uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people who subscribe to Nazism were pouring into Israel, Israel sure as hell wouldn't be putting them up in cities and giving them free food and health care and all that kind of stuff. They'd be like pushing those people back into the sea if they had to. But, uh, you know, the West uh, uh, d- d- fails to look at, yeah, you can't do wrong. You can't do a lot of wrong doing what the Jews do. You know, I mean, they're very smart and they're very successful, especially the uh, Ashkenazim. So uh, go and look what the Jews are doing. The Jews are building giant fences and the Jews do not let people <laughs> into their country who aren't part of their culture. And the Jews don't let the majority pal- of Palestinians come in and vote because they know they'd lose their country. So somehow it's perfectly valid for the Jews to build fences and keep um, elements hostile to their culture out. But should any European do it, they're Nazis. See, if the Jews do it, it's a really good idea. If the Europeans do it, they're Nazis. I mean, this is the lunatic comedy of, of disaster that we're currently enmeshed in. Right, right. Hey, but I, I feel like... And no, I, I definitely agree. It's uh, And on that, that, that Battle of Vienna, I actually looked this up because I couldn't believe it. It's they, uh, It was like a... A Polish king that defeated the, the Ottoman Empire at this battle, and it was on 9/11. And yeah, just ask the Greeks what it was like being ruled by uh, Turkish uh, Ottoman Muslims for 400 years. It was not a lot of fun, right? So, so like now that they're there, you can't, you can't just, you couldn't say like you guys got to go back home. Well, what do you mean? I couldn't. What the hell would I say? I don't have any political power. What, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> no, I meant that. I don't know. It, I, I, it just seems like, like the Ger- some German people, like there was like this um, protest in Dresden. There was like twenty thousand people that were like protesting against the refugees coming into their country. Yeah, and it just seems like. Like a self-defense kind of thing. No, it's 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 very simple. It's very simple. It's all the women and the girly men. Because to not let the people into the country, you just you have to turn the boats back. That's all you do. Can't land here. Get the hell back outside our two-mile radius. You can't land here. All you had to do. Hey, first ten boats, turn them back, and and you have no problem. You have no problem. But that kind of resolution makes girly women and girly men go, oh no, the poor needy people. The poor, the, they're, cry, they're crying. They're holding out their hands beseechingly. And, and like idiots, girly, stupid, male and female idiots 
can't handle it when aggression is used to protect them. They freak out and they're, oh, oh my God. You know, it's like Bill Riley, Bill O'Reilly, a girly man. Yeah, Bill, I'm calling you out, you pussy. <laughs> are you saying that government agents are going to remove people by force? Yes, you dumb Irish shit hick. That's the law. You giant triple chinned douchebag. That's the law. That's what governments do. They use force. They are violent. And we've all sold our soul to the government. To the point now where if the government does anything that makes us go, eek, we freak the fuck out. We've sold our children to this entity. We've sold their education to this entity. We've sold their future through debt to this entity. We have given all our retirement money to this empathy. We've put entity. We've put this government in charge of everything. And we're so enmeshed. We're so we have like our our little tender dewy cheeks pressed up against the sweaty abs of the greatest Satan in the known universe, which is the modern state. We we're so hugged and pressed up and we're licking the Satan sweat off these fucking abs and we're hugging it and we've given our children and we've sold our souls to the entirety of evil known as the state to the point where we've married the state we call the state the agent of everything virtuous. Got a problem to solve? Call the state. Hey, is someone using drugs? Call the state. Hey, is someone not educating their children in the way that you want? Call the state. Ooh, is some teenager not getting paid as much as you think in some alternative universe of happiness? They should get paid? Call the state. Ooh, is medicine getting a little too expensive? Call the state. Government, government, government. Solve everything, everything, everything. We have become codependent, gold-digging whores of the Satan dick of statism. We have wrapped our arms, our legs, and our vulvas around this giant cock of evil known as the state. And then... When the government does something aggressive like you can't land here, go back to the ocean, everyone screams because they know what they've done. They bought a little temporary security from want or from need or from unhappiness or discontent or inconvenience. They have bought this from the state by selling everything that is free and valuable and worthwhile to the powers that be. So when the government does something aggressive, it hurts people's shitty consciences because it reveals that this is not an angel that they are hugging. These aren't white feathery wings and giant glowing close encounter halos floating around them. No, no. No, they are hugging Satan himself. And that's why they can't invoke the state's aggression anymore. Because the state fucking owns them. Mind, body, conscience, soul, and future. And because so few people in Europe have kids, what do they care? Why go through the discomfort of fighting people about immigrants? Ah, I'm going to live out my next 20 or 30 or 40 years and then I'm dead. It's not going to turn to shit before then. Angela Merkel doesn't have any kids. The fuck does she care? 
She just wants power. She wants to stay in power. She wants to snort the finely ground up children's hopes and souls off the belly of the beast. Let's just snort that stuff. Oh, that's good, man. That feels great. She doesn't have any daughters who are going to grow up to be raped by these people. Her sons aren't going to have to go into hand-to-hand combat, street-to-street combat, urban, gritty, death, warfare combat if it comes to that, which I hope it doesn't, but I think it might. Her sons aren't going to pay for that. And even if she had sons, they'd be inside a nice, gated community with 24-hour security. This is the price of assuming the government is good. You cannot handle any of its power, even when that power would be beneficial to you. Because it reveals the true nature of the entity you placed all of your hopes in. It ain't an angel. And so anytime it acts less than angelic, people freak out. Because they think they're in a hotel. But they're not. They're in a prison laced with very dangerous candy. Wow, that's some really powerful imagery. I, no, I, I agree. It's, it's I, I don't know. It's just like, I, I want to search for some kind of like, this isn't going to be that bad. Maybe they can just do this and that kind of, but then that's, you know, it's ignoring that the problem to begin with is that they, you know, they put the government in charge of the borders. And I mean, the government is in charge of that land mass. And I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this. The only way it's not going to be that bad is if the great materialistic bitch whore seductress of Western remnant capitalism can seduce the extremists into giving up their extremist beliefs, right? That's the only chance. And now, the guys who went, were, you know, the, the fighters on 9-11, the, 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 the hijackers on 9-11, they went to strip clubs and they still went and did it. They, they took all of the gross, crass, bestial materialism of the West in and imbibed it deeply and went off and did their crazy shit. And all of this requires that the IQ can be raised. The IQ of a lot of these countries is 85. That is a full standard deviation below the IQ of Europe. A full standard deviation below the IQ of Europe. Now, if there's any genetic component to that, and I believe that there is, nobody knows for sure, it's just a belief, uh, but it's a belief with quite a bit of data, and we're just about to put out an interview with Dr. Jason Richwine about this, But if there's any genetic components, or if the culture is so insular that it's equivalent to genetic in the transmission of low intelligence, then you cannot run a high IQ society with low IQ people. It's like trying to run a graduate department in physics with people who can't do math. It's like You can't do it. Yeah, well, you can't do it. Even if you don't, they vote, they don't vote, whatever. Now, if there are genetic components to the low IQ of the people coming in, I will tell you exactly what's going to happen. And it's really obvious. And this, if it is genetic or equivalent to genetic, their low IQ, 
I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. They're going to fail. These immigrants are going to fail. And they're not just going to fail a little bit. They're going to fail hard. You are importing a radicalized, low IQ population into a high IQ society, and capitalism pays for intelligence. That's what it does. You get paid for your intelligence. And so you are importing a huge bunch of people into Europe who are going to fail. They're not staying on welfare because they're lazy. They're not. That's like saying somebody with an IQ of 80 doesn't apply to graduate school because they're lazy. No. They're doing what is economically the best option for them. Again, in general, right? But you are importing a gene set that is incompatible with success in a free market economy. Now, because no one can talk about IQ and no one can talk about any potential genetic relationship between ethnic communities and IQ, what that means is that the only way that anyone will ever explain the failures of these Africans in a European society, you know as well as I do, how is everyone going to explain that? They're going to say that it's oppressive white culture of Europe that... White racism. Not, exactly. Not going to hire them. They're, you know, how dare they not pay well, want to pay welfare like... They owe them this for bombing their countries and all that. Islamophobia, xenophobia, Nazism, racism, welcome to your future, Europe. That's all you're going to hear for the next thousand years. This group of people are not succeeding because you're racist. If you had a society entirely based on basketball and Asians moved in and very few of them ended up in the NBA and they just screamed racism at everyone and then the government tried to move in and force people to hire short Asians. And I mean, what a mess. Racial disparities, ethnic disparities are the ultimate government program because they import disparate groups who end up with disparate outcomes and then they blame every, all of those disparate outcomes are blamed on white racism. So it's a perfect opportunity to endlessly attack whites, particularly white males, And because governments are trying to solve a problem that may in fact be genetic, it will never get solved. It's perfect. It's a perfect government program. So governments will only benefit from this mess. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is, of course, the the ancient communist goal, right? Communists in the 1920s and the 1930s realized that they couldn't sell communism because it was shit. People were starving to death. In the Ukraine, formerly the breadbasket of Europe, they were starving to death by the millions. They couldn't sell communism as anything good. All they could do was take a long, slow, multicultural dump on the fine porcelain China of Western capitalist democracies. We talk about this in the truth about immigration. Communism provokes minorities to subvert countries, to destroy countries. Because you can't ever talk about any genetics... Everyone's assumed to be equal and therefore all inequalities must come from white racism. This is the ultimate abuse against whites. To blame whites for something which is not the fault of whites, which is that there appear to be significant and impossible to fundamentally change intelligence differences between ethnic groups. 
Well, nobody can ever talk about that because the whole purpose is to destroy the market and expand the power. I mean, the, the verbal sadists who used to inhabit the priesthood, they all jumped to government, but the free market kept eroding government, so they got a lash back somehow. And these exquisite verbal abusers just attack anyone who talks about, hey, maybe you can explain how different groups do in a free market according to collective measures of intelligence. Maybe that's something we should talk about. No, that's racist. First of all, facts can't be racist. And secondly, denying this empirical reality means that racism is not solved. It's just endlessly armed and in a futile and self-destructive way aimed at whites. And I'm sick, I'm sick of it. I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of being called a racist for something that is not my fault. And which I can't fix and nobody knows how to fix. Screaming racism at people because um, blacks are collectively less intelligent, screaming racism at people because Asians are collectively shorter, is, is insane. But very effective. I agree, and it, it, it's, I feel sad now. <laughs> but it's on what you said earlier about how you can't. The only way you can, you need to, it needs to be an intellectual battle, a battle of ideas. And what I found is that, you know, I talk to people about peaceful parenting and uh, these, uh, these are people who, you know, uh, are of higher IQ that, you know, we're already kind of receptive to it. We're kind of already, they, they might have like been pro spanking like myself but then you know after the uh, after I expose them to the arguments that they start to you know be like oh well you know I didn't know that whereas I, I and then I tell these people you know and they, they basically respond that like they can't see these like durable populations you know furthering the cause of peaceful parenting and <laughs> you think seems, it seems like, like we said once about this, this genetics, like, like the, the, all the smartest people are not breeding anymore, and then the people who are less are less intelligent are being paid to breed. Oh, no, this is what you need to. This is what you explain. Let me let me talk to Europe for a moment, if you don't mind. Hello, Europe. Can you pick up the red phone? Actually, forget the red phone. That's the communist phone. Pick up the clarity phone. Pick up the phone of reason. Okay, this is what I really want to say to Europe. Europe, this is the reality of your situation. If you allow yourself to be overrun by entire groups of people fundamentally antithetical to everything that you treasure and everything that you hold dear, Europe, are you into not persecuting gays? Bringing a lot of Muslims in ain't going to help because in many Muslim countries, you can be beheaded in the public square if people accuse you of being gay. Do you like equality for women? Eight of the ten countries ranked the worst for women's rights are Muslim. So if you don't want to defend your gay friends, if you don't want to defend your women, then you know what? You deserve to fail. 
You deserve to be erased. You deserve to be washed away. Any animal that refuses to defend itself, that is tasty. (laughs) It's tasty, well-marinated, and it refuses to defend itself deserves to be wiped out. If all the antelope in Africa tomorrow say, you know what, I got tiny skinny ass legs. I got like supermodel legs. My knees are wobbly. And you know, after I run, my ankles are sore and my heart like pumps and my lungs burn. Forget it. I'm not running anymore. I'm done with the running. Forget it. Done with it. Tired of the jumping. You know, there's potholes in the savannah. It looks flat. It's riddled with holes. I'm done with it. Forget it. We've been running for 200 million years. We're tired. Forget it. All done. And they just stand there. (laughs) They've given up on running. What do you think evolution does to the prey that doesn't defend itself, that doesn't run, that doesn't fight back? Evolution wipes it out. You are gone, baby gone as if you never were. And so every civilization, every culture faces these tests. And it simply comes down to, are you selected to survive? Do you select yourselves to survive or do you not? And if it's too much of an effort and you don't want to make people upset and you don't want to say things that are unpopular and and you don't want to maybe have awkward silences at dinner parties, (gasps) The horror. People might think that I'm bigoted. People might think that because I talk about facts, I'm racist. People might not like me as much. If this is what Europe has collapsed into, if this is the kind of modern squidgy jellyfish that is crawling across the European landscape, then yeah, we'll squish that fucker out. You'll just be a little stain on a giant ancient dinosaur print. Because that's what happens to all the organisms that when they're facing attack, they don't defend themselves. And again, I'm not talking violence. If you can't be roused to run or to fight, if your fight or flight mechanism has turned into a cowering, a video game session followed by a nap, then yeah, absolutely, you are a plant that has run out of sunlight. You are a fish that has run out of oxygen. You can't survive in a dangerous world by rolling your eyes and hiding under the couch. Jews understand this. They got a country. And they are defending it like fuck. And they are keeping people out who are antithetical to their culture. And if Europe is like, hugs and kisses. Hey, you've disobeyed the law. There's enough of you that I think that's great. Here's some candy. Here's an orange. Yay you. I'm sorry, I hate to say it, but the ancient civilization that has resided in there for thousands of years, that has brought some of the greatest treasures that mankind currently possesses but may not possess for long. Science, the free market in particular, 
equality under the law, subjugation of church to reason, separation of church and state, all of these great benefits. If these treasures, which were fought and died for by the millions, by the blood of Europeans, end of slavery, end of slavery, one of the greatest moral achievements in the history of mankind, if not the greatest. If the spine has so far slid out of the European soul that its only relationship to its spinal cord is the same relationship that an anthropologist has to a fucking dinosaur bone a thousand miles under the ground, then Europe evolutionarily doesn't deserve to survive. The antelope that stopped running won't survive. Do they deserve to survive? Doesn't matter. They won't. And if Europeans have become so broken and terrified and subjugated and, yeah, okay, then the more aggressive species will will move in and will take over. And um, I don't know what the answer to that is other than it's going to happen unless you do something. What you do should be peaceful. What you should do should be resolute. And you should give up one fantasy. This is the one toxic cancerous, vicious, acidic, soul-eating, spine-crushing belief that Europeans have, that white people have. I will tell you this. This is the one keystone to the arch that needs to go. And the fundamental, suicidal, seppuku-style error that Europeans have is this. It is the idea that virtue is a commandment without context. That virtue is a commandment without context. In other words, you must be good. You must be honest. You must act with integrity. You must take the high road no matter what the other person does. It is a commandment. Morality is physics. It is owed to everyone and everything and their dog. We must be good. We must be honest. We must have empathy. We must be kind. As willed exudings from our moral geyser of indiscriminate virtue for everyone. Well, you know what we call a woman who hands her pussy out like Halloween candy? We call that woman a whore. And you know what we call people who hand out their virtue like Halloween candy? Who hand out their empathy like Halloween candy? Who hand out their generosity and their inclusiveness like Halloween candy? Do you know what we call those people? We call those people fucking history! They are sedimentary layers, they are shit to be discovered by anthropologists or aliens a thousand years from now, but they are not people who make it into the future. Oh, you're intolerant, I'll be tolerant of that. Oh, you're hateful, I'll love you for that. Oh, you're dishonest, I'll I'll be honest for that. Oh, you're cruel, I'll be kind for that. You break your word, I'll keep my promises. You've not done any kindness to me, 
Oh, look at all the kindness I can give to you. Excessive empathy is like hate-fucking your enemy who loves it. This idea, this, this pathological altruism, this, this suicidal can't understand that the world is still full of people who want the demise of the West, this absolutely suicidal, pathological, cancerous empathy will be the death of civilization if we don't find some way to choke it emotionally off at its source and steal ourselves back to remembering there are predators in the world. You may have grown up with kittens. That doesn't mean there aren't tigers out there who will take your arm off as soon as look at you. Jesus, God, what the hell happened to us? What the hell happened to us? Oh, you cut off the heads of homosexuals and kill women for going out without their burqa? Welcome! Here's a hug. How wonderful. Can't wait to have you in the country. Oh, do you guys kill people? For not believing in your religion anymore? Well, come on in. Let's show you all this kindness. God almighty. That's insane. I mean, we look at a woman whose husband beats her up every weekend. And we look at her who says, she said, but, but I love him. I love him. I'm going to love him till he's better. I'm going to love him till he's saved. I'm going to love him till he loves me back the way that I deserve. What would he say to this woman? You're going to do this until you're dead. You're going to do this until he kills you. Because you're paying him with your presence and your sex and your cooking and your cleaning and everything. You are rewarding him for his brutality towards you. That is codependent. That is suicidal. That is sick. That is destructive. And that will end up with you in the grave and him in a jail. So stop it. Stop at the fantasy that your love can change his nature. So Europe is basically a battered woman. Well, I would say European males are generally battered women. Uh, European males have been verbally abused for, I don't know, close on 100 years now, certainly over the last 50 years. And women and feminists have been doing a lot of the abusing. But European males are in a state of pathological altruism, which is the result of intense and concentrated and relentless verbal abuse for the last 50 years. The giant shit test of feminism made men fold like a deck of old cards and now they can't lift their hand up to protect their women because the women have been attacking them for 50 plus years. Women have been attacking men, and I don't mean all women, of course, but the women who are attacking men have precious few women attacking them back, right? That's Christina Hoff Summers and, and um, Ayn Rand did some anti-feminist stuff and um, Phyllis Schlafly and a bunch of other people, but not that many. And so men have been, you know, basically... White males in particular have had giant socialist shits forced down their throat for the last 50 or 60 years. You racist, you sexist, you cisgendered scum. You patriarchs. You xenophobes, you Islamophobes, you fuckers. And men have stepped down from the walls of the world. 
writes like that, uh, Colonel Jessup and a few good men. Who's going to stand on that wall? Is it going to be you? Somebody's got to stand on that wall. Well, somebody has to stand on the wall and defend civilization from a brutal and cruel world. The West, Europe, North America, by far the exceptions throughout history. By far the exceptions throughout history. Most of history is an endless churning shit and fuck fest of murder, violence, rape, lust, and child brutality. That's all it is. It's all it is. Oh, look, a nice vase. (laughs) That's what you get out of 6,000 years of some civilizations. Oh, look, the first porn. (laughs) Hey, can I make something out of something? I'm going to make a pussy and a penis. (laughs) Because, you know, the internet is nothing new. Technology, porn. (sighs) So... This pathological altruism is the result of verbal abuse. Verbal abuse creates a Stockholm Syndrome and it creates a terror of independent thought for fear of attack. And I get these messages from people all over Europe. All over Europe. They're pouring in these messages. You can see them on the comments of the videos. They're filling up our inbox. I can't say anything. I don't like it. I'm terrified of saying anything. Well... Do you think it was a lot of fun to go to war? Do you think it was a lot of fun? Do you think the guys were having a real fine beach vacation in the first 20 endless goddamn minutes of Saving Private Ryan? You fight now or you fight later. It's your choice. But they're all so terrified. And, you know, can I blame men? Not really. What would they be protecting? What would the men who traditionally are the ones who stand up and say, no, this is bad for us. I will not do it. I don't care that there are people mewling and squalling and complaining and patriarchy. I don't care. I don't care. I'm standing here and I'm defending what is left of civilization from what is less civilized. I'm defending women and children and helpless men and the old from the people who are coming in whose ideology specifically demands that they wish us harm. Men aren't doing that. They don't have children. Why? Well, they have no kids. (laughs) And women have hated them for 50 years. Because they were raised in an environment where they were viewed as inconvenient and broken girls. Oh, he's restless. Let's drug him. Oh, he's not that interested in cutting out little things and making dresses. Oh, he just wants to go out and play. Oh, he's rough. Oh, my goodness. He doesn't seem to be able to sit on his ass for four hours straight because he's seven and a boy and wants to go out there and fight dragons. So we got to drug him and we got to nag him and we got to give him lines and we got to complain about him. We call his mother. He's got attention deficit disorder. No, you're boring. School sucks. You know, if I sit you in front of a television and turn it off and turn the lights out and leave you there for seven hours, you find your mind wanders a little, that's still more stimulating than school. Because school comes with boredom and, added bonus, terror. Not only are the teachers boring, not only is the content mindless, not only does nothing make any sense at all, no, not only is it pointless busy work to empty out your head and fill it with vacuous obedience to the powers that be, also there's fear 
because there's bullies. Oh, and all the women think that you're just not that great because you're a boy. So you're kind of smelly and you're kind of loud. And you're kind of rough and tumble. So you get to get that rough and tumble out or, you know, we're going to give you drugs that are going to shrink, oh, about 10% of your entire fucking brainstem. How's that? He's paying attention to the drool that's now collecting on his lap and his brain is shrinking as we speak to the point where he moves his head around and his brain continues to roll a little bit like a bowling ball in the bottom of a boat when he stops. And this is how the boys were brought up in the West. You suck. You're not as nice and compliant and obedient as those girls. Okay. Say the boys, we get it. Boys suck. Boys are terrible. Plus, we're going to grow up to be patriarchs and apparently just homophobes and, and racists. Like, we're terrible. We get it. We're terrible people. Horrible people. Brutal people. We have to be drugged to be as nice as girls. Which is like 90% of the ADD medication, if it's not even medication, compliance drugs <laughs> go to the boys. So boys grow up and say, okay, masculinity sucks. Masculinity is toxic. Women are always wonderful. Society really hates us. They really look down upon us. We are troublesome. We are either neutered or trouble. We either nod and, and say, hey, can I get some kibbles if I agree with, yeah, men suck, I suck, we all suck. Can I get, a, you know, can I get maybe a university professorship, some kibbles? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm willing to self-flagellate. It's like the monks. Beat yourself up enough and you get to be the prior, the head of the monastery. The guy who beats himself up the most moves up the most. Beat up, move up. Now you self-flagellate enough. Oh, yeah, Western, the capitalism is terrible. Men are terrible. Oh, my God, women are wonderful. Great, you move up. And then like Lauren Summers, if you ever point out the fact that male and female brains are different, you get your ass fired. Oh, my God. President of Harvard, I think, and someone asked him a question. Why do you think there aren't that many women high up in the STEM fields? He's like, well, you know, male and female brains are a little different. Men are more extreme at either end. That could have something to do with it. Ah! A glimmer of truth. We're allergic to it. Kill, kill, kill. So men have been raised and everybody hates us. So who the fuck are we going to defend? And why? Why would we? This is what happens when you verbally abuse those who stand between you and chaos for 50 years straight. And you drug them. And you rape them. And you destroy them in the courts. And you screw them up in divorce. You get a bunch of guys who are like, I'm not going to protect anybody. Nobody even likes me. Why the hell would I protect people who've spent 50 years drugging me, putting me down, and telling me how much I'm scum and they hate me? Why on earth would I want to pretend that? You don't ask Jews to give a kidney to Hitler, for God's sakes. Why would you ask men to protect your culture? This is what happens when you verbally abuse your defenders. You get defenseless. That's where you end up. You men are scum. Oh, wait, there's dangerous men coming. Will you guys help us out? Sorry, scum don't fight. Scum don't protect you. Patriarchs, I wouldn't want to be demeaning to you by stepping between you 
and an invading horde. That might be demeaning to you. I'm out of here. <sighs> so, yeah, I mean, I think um, the pathological altruism, see, Men generally tend to be pretty sensitive to the feelings of women. Biologically, women say yes or no to whatever, right? to sex, to reproduction. So men who don't care what women feel, who are willing to offend women, those genes don't flourish. <laughs> Let's put it as mildly as possible. Whereas those men who cater to women, oh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a patriarchy and uh, I'm not part of it. Uh, can I get into your pants? Is that is that the magic phrase? Is that uh, open friend from, from Lord of the Rings? Uh, speak friend and enter. Speak socialism and enter. Uh, sp uh, speak environmentalism and enter. Speak pacifism and enter. Is that right? So the real power is, is the women, right? Men's opinions, men's preferences, men's beliefs are very generally the shadow cast by what women accept or, or don't. And women foolishly allowed themselves to be turned by the communists and by the socialists against their male protectors. And then you had a whole bunch of boys raised without fathers, raised almost entirely by a phalanx and planet of women. You know, somewhere between Pluto and Uranus is the planet estrogen, where we send boys to be raised. <laughs> they come back very broken. <laughs> and men were like, oh, okay, uh, you want to go work because raising kids is what? Not rich, not enriching anymore? Okay, uh, I guess we'll uh, go off to work and then we'll take all the money that you're making from your job and we'll either pay it in taxes or hand it over to daycare workers or both. So you're abandoning your kids to go work some stupid job because feminists said that there's a clique or something. I don't know. And then we'll take all that money that, that and then strangers will raise their children and you'll be at some job that we take your earnings and use it to pay the strangers who raise their children badly. Yeah, what could go wrong with this? But I don't want her to be upset with me because the court system will fry me like two-day-old potatoes, if I disagree with my wife that much, right? When the, when the court system started to really screw men in divorce, when you got no-fault divorce, when you got alimony, palimony, you got child support, you got sexual allegations in divorce, uh, when, when men are just facing like a complete disaster, then they got no negotiating positions. They just do whatever women want. Oh, okay, absolutely, okay, honey. That sort of walking along, slope-shouldered, staring at the sidewalk, muttering to yourself, trying to remember your youth, <laughs> married guy, cliche, right? I can't say anything because if she divorces me, I'm going to end up living out of a ladder. And so women got way too much power, way too much power in a marriage. And um, men stopped having any capacity to negotiate, any capacity to affect their will, any capacity to, to express their preferences. Why the hell would you go to work? You, you wanted to have kids. We've got three kids. Why the hell would you go to work? We're not going to make any money. Spend time with the kids. You patriarch, you're suppressing my innate capacity to be feminine and wonderful and a sculptor. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and um, when men couldn't negotiate anymore, then boys grew up 
viewing men as obsolete, as the weaker sex, as pathetic. They internalized that. They modeled it. They were told that repeatedly. They had the models of men who were beaten down, broken, oppressed, and pathetic, or absent and nuked by lawyers. Just a little shit stain where some legal briefs used to be. And women are all wonderful, and they all hate the men. Oh, this male hatred. You know, you ever want to know, as the old saying goes, you ever want to know who rules in society? Just look at who you can't criticize. Who can you not criticize? Those are the people in charge. Hey, if white males are in charge, how come we're bagged on and shit on all the time? Oh, and women, but they have so much empathy. You see, they're so caring. They're so wonderful. Women are so lovely. Bullshit. Bullshit. Not a lot of single moms out there saying, hey, how do you guys feel about paying a lot of taxes to support me? Does that make you feel bad? Does that reduce your sexual market value because my irresponsible cavernous hoo-hoo is sucking up all your earnings? It's like a gold mine up there, (laughs) except it's only in, never out. I guess in and out sometimes. Goodbye, I could truck in here and go spelunking for my former earnings. (laughs) Sorry, there's several men in here of which nobody seems to know the last name. Echo, hello, arm in arm, we're going out with the gold. Sorry, we can't. It's been dissolved. It was put in the Fed and it's gone. So, I don't know what the <laughs> I was talking about. I'll get back. Oh, yes, that's right. So, men, uh, yeah, we're, we're hated and... Um, we won't stand up. I mean, it should be men out there demanding, like, hell no. Hell no. We pay most of the taxes. No, we can't have these migrants in here. I'm sorry about their country. I disagreed with the war to begin with. But no, we have laws. Because you know what's going to happen next? Last thing I'll say about all this shit. Next thing that's going to happen. Young people are looking at this all the time. Looking at this shit all the time. They're looking at society and its rules. And I'll tell you, a very big and giant awakening for me, my friend, was realizing that society has no rules, that it's all what you're confident enough to get away with. It's all there is in society. What you're confident enough to get away with, you're most likely going to get away with. You know, when I was a kid, it was like, oh man, you got to show women respect all the time. And, and man, you, 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 can't, uh, you can't abuse your position as a boss. You can't. Sexual harassment is terrible. And now Bill Clinton gets blowjobs from his inflatable geisha known as Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office and is late for meeting the King of Jordan because he's sticking a probably Cuban cigar up or hoo-hoo. And all the feminists rush to defend him. And it's like, oh my God, really? Wait a minute. I thought, I thought if we did bad things, we'd get in trouble. <laughs> oh my God. What, they're multi-multi-millionaires now because everybody wants to get this sexual predator to come and speak at their events? Women want him to autograph their tits? Are you kidding me? I mean, no wonder his heart (laughs) gave out when he couldn't spray it on any willing intern. It backed up and clogged his arteries. So... I mean, this is all over the place. Anthony Weiner took a credible second run at political office after tweeting his meat all over the known... Twitterverse and um, God Almighty, you know, a, a lot of the guys who are in the weather underground, 
Uh, it's a terrorist group that, that bombed a bunch of polices uh, in, in the 1960s. A lot of these guys, um, Bill Ayers and so on, they're like university professors now. Blow up a bunch of buildings and you can be a universe, university professor. And this is in a world where, where third-rate burglars without any prior convictions, Halderman and Ehrlichman and, and other people who were part of the uh, theft uh, in, in Watergate, they went to jail for like 20 years for stealing nothing of any particular value with no prior convictions. Jail for 20 years because they're unpopular. You know, Nixon hounded a bunch of communists. Um, he was part of the... Um, early part of the uh, McCarthyism campaign, he handed a bunch of communists, handed a bunch of communists, they got him back and they nailed him to the wall for this stuff. And at least he had the fairly decent good grace to just resign rather than put America through an impeachment scandal. God, no, the Clintons hang on like grim death. I mean, <laughs> Hillary Clinton is like this beetle-faced cockroach that the waterfall of justice just can't wash down the fucking drain. It's like, oh my God, oh my God. Oh, you know, nuclear war, they'll be like the blue man group, cockroaches and Hillary's political career scuttling through the smoking remnants and nuclear shadows of her former supporters who are probably happy to be dead at this point. <laughs> but um, now, well, there are all these laws, you see, all these laws. You can't come into the country without the right papers, you see. You've got to have the right papers. Oh, if you want a driver's license, you have to have the right papers. You have to go through the right test. There are all these rules and laws, except there aren't anymore. Because the grave challenge of the migrant crisis is not just the obvious surface stuff, incompatibilities and so on, but it is the degree to which young people say, there aren't any rules. There are no rules. Because there are these laws that say you can't come into the country. There's a big, long process you've got to go through to get into the country. Otherwise, we deport you. And the young people are looking at all of this. They're looking at all of this. And they're saying, you know what? There are no rules. And these people, hundreds of thousands of people swarming into the country, very much against the law, they're getting welfare. They're getting free health care, free housing, free education, free language lessons. Not only do you not have any negative repercussions for breaking the law, they will shower you with what is to these immigrants unimaginable wealth for breaking the law. The rule of law in Europe has died. And it takes a long time for that to show up. Like if you look at what happened with, the, with Clinton, right? How did he get out of? He said under, under oath, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. He said that under oath. Then it turns out he fucked it with everything except his penis in the vagina. When he said, well, oral sex. That's not really sex. Now, do you know what happened to young people and blowjobs? Because the entire society said blowjobs are not sex. Oral sex rates among the young went through the roof after the Clinton scandal. Your gift from the smoky-haired sadistic president is 
massive amounts of oral herpes skating around the population like hell on ice, right? That's what happened. Because they're like, oh, well, I can stay a virgin and have lots of oral sex. That's not sex. The president said it. Everyone's agreeing with him. The media is agreeing with him. It's not sex. It's only sex. It's just, who cares? It's only sex. Not sex. Not sex. It's just a blowjob. It's not sex. Okay, so now instead of a goodnight kiss, I bring my paranet and go on down. Welcome to gonorrhea swimming between your teeth like eels through coral. Because it's not sex. You see, when society says blowjobs ain't sex, all the young people listen, and then you get lipstick parties where people figure out how many different shades of lipsticks they can leave on a man's penis, a boy's penis. Because it's not sex. The young are listening and watching always. Always. God forbid I bite my nails in front of my daughter. Dad, nobody. <laughs> Kids are always watching, always watching, always watching. And what they're seeing in Europe is there's no rule of law. Get enough of your friends. And everyone folds. Get enough people to break the law. And there is no law. And there's not even any conflict. And anybody who suggests the rule of law is screamed down as a bigot and a racist and a hateful person. It is the death, not of European sovereignty, but the death of the rule of law in Europe. That is going to have the worst consequences. Society, even a state of society, cannot survive when there is skepticism as to the legal and moral legitimacy of the government. Because then it's just a war of all against all. And it's just like you do whatever you can get away with. There is no standard which triggers people's voluntary conformity with the legal and moral standards of society. What can, what can you get away with? And once it becomes a game of cat and mouse between the government and the citizens, it's all over. It's all over. All over. Once people no longer believe that there's any morality to the rule of law in those above them, then they just do whatever they can get away with. Whatever they can get away with. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He was some lawyer went to jail for corruption, I think like that. He's got his own TV show now. His own TV show. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Alger Hiss went to jail for perjury when he was testifying in some of the McCarthy hearings. Spends a couple of years in jail, comes out. Everyone cheers. He gets the professorship. He's fated around town. He's the, he's the guy. He's been proven to be a communist spy. And people still think he's a great guy. So this is the great secret. Do with confidence. You can get away with virtually anything. Now, I have my own moral standards. I'm not sort of, you know, slithering my way through these fetid rocks. But I'm a little bit off the bell curve when it comes to moral standards. But what you're teaching to the young, the greatest cost, which is really going to bring down society, is that the young will have no respect for the rule of law anymore. Because there were all these rules, and everyone told them there were all these rules. And then the moment 
it became inconvenient to maintain these rules, society just folded and rewarded and screamed down anyone who said, shouldn't the rule of law mean something here? We have these rules. And now the men won't defend that which the young have no respect for. <laughs> so it's all over. I mean, Europe as we know it is gone. It vanished over the last month or two. Maybe something far better can take its place. But there's nothing left. Then the mournful playing of taps and the slow stroll away in the rain from the grave of what was once the greatest civilization the world has ever known. Thank you for my rant. No, it's that that's epic. Um, I, I'm like <laughs> kind of look around for words. Uh, no, no, it's not. I don't expect you to <laughs> have been a little follow-up to that rather bottled-up speech. So I appreciate your call, man. You're welcome back anytime. I promise to let you get a few words in, words in next time. I mentioned one thing. Sure. So well, one thing I thought about, like, when you were saying that, you know, like, you know, this, uh, this, um, n- not that good for the gays and, uh, and the feminists. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's just it's kind of ironic like I, I never quite understood like you know you know the R and K like why uh, if they if uh, gay men and gay women don't reproduce why they they like they're overwhelmingly on the left and it, and I I hypothesize that it has something to do with like the freedom of sexuality or something. Yeah, I mean that's that's a yeah that's a fair that's a fairly big topic. Um, but generally, the less you invest in your young, the more you will trend towards R. Like it's not like you're born R and then you just don't invest in your young, right? I mean, when you have kids, if you invest in your children, your biology changes. The the loss of testosterone that men have around children is dose dependent. In other words, the more children they have and the more time they spend around those children, the lower their testosterone becomes. Now, that's because you're not supposed to beat up your kids for annoying you, right? So you've got to lower your testosterone when you're around kids. However, it's my theory, and I don't have any proof of this, but it's my particular theory, just based on history and what I've seen, that um, this testosterone is very low, but I bet you it goes higher when there's a threat because you've got more to protect, right? So your fight or flight mechanism, your testosterone, your aggression is very much low around your kids. But should anything threaten those kids, you're a fucking beast, right? And, and because there's – so if you don't have kids, your testosterone remains high. You want to keep screwing around and you, you – you know, but you don't – your fight or flight mechanism doesn't get elevated if you don't have kids because you've got nothing to protect. Got nothing to protect, right? I mean, this is how they got the war going, right? Condoleezza Rice's famous statement, we don't want the smoking gun to be in the form of a mushroom cloud. Your children could be vaporized. And that gets every K-style man to say, okay, let's go to war because my kids could be threatened, right? That's why they had to bring the threat to the American population because it is threats against children that gets the K-warrior going. And so if you don't have kids, you'll stay more R. I mean, I, th- I think we, we, you know, we're born with some tendencies. We'll get to a call about this. It's supposed to be tonight, but it's kind of late. We're born with some tendencies, but it's our life experiences and life choices, I think, that end up with us going one way or the other, full steam. Now, gay children, uh, sorry, gay, gay people up until recently, now gays can adopt and all that, but gay people up until recently 
didn't usually have kids. Now, some of them did have kids because they would pretend to be straight and, you know, I don't know, think about uh, some Roman gladiator while they were doggy styling their wife or something. And they then had kids and so on. But now, because gays fortunately are no longer (laughs) aggressed against in society in the West as a whole, they can be openly gay and enjoy that lifestyle. But that generally means more sex, right? I mean, I had roommates many years ago who uh, they had sex and then they introduced each other, themselves to each other, and then they went on a date next week, right? That's not the typical heterosexual, and maybe it is now, I don't know. But when I was growing up, that's not the typical heterosexual approach to things. Um, and so, yeah, if gay people are, you know, very promiscuous and don't have any kids, they will, I think, tend to be a little bit more on the R side, um, just based on the epigenetics of, of choice. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's what I, I, I thought of. And I... I appreciate your clarification on that. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, so much. Uh, sorry, a bit of a short show. We started a tad late tonight, but um, appreciate everyone calling in. Sorry to the callers we didn't get to. We will get to you as soon as uh, inhumanly possible. Uh, thanks, everyone, for your support uh, of the show. I guess by the time you hear this, it will no longer be the end of the month. But uh, we do, of course, really need and appreciate your support. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us bring these scalding and invigorating truths to the world as a whole and continue to do the work with your support necessary to make the future a far brighter pace than it would ever be without philosophy and you. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Thanks again, everyone. Have yourself a wonderful night.